even when I can't feel him, even when I can't hear him. It's kind of like winter. The ground is frozen, right? Sometimes covered by a blanket of snow. It looks like nothing's going on, but what we don't see is what's happening underneath. Nutrients are being broken down into the soil. Roots are growing deeper. There's seeds germinating. And when spring arrives, we see firsthand that something was going on. There are flowers in bloom. There's trees that are blossoming. And there's shoots of green just coming up all over the place. What appeared to be dead, is bursting with life. It's a reminder that God is working behind the scenes all the time, regardless of what we see or don't see, regardless of what we feel or don't feel. It's a reminder, I think, that the Israelites could have used after spending nearly 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God had promised a lot to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But from their perspective, that was a long time ago. Where's God now? What's he doing for us today? Our text today tells the story of Moses' birth and how he is preserved, actually saved, by God's providence. It's a story of God working behind the scenes to bring a new hope to the Hebrew people. It's a story most of us know pretty well. Perhaps so well that we may not think that there's much left for us to learn from it. Well, I was surprised and encouraged by digging deeper into this passage. I hope you will be too. So let's read our passage for today, starting in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer, could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the waters. Would you join me in prayer? 
Father, oh God, in these few short verses, you give us an intense, emotional, and triumphant story, a story that's filled with meaning, a story that has life lessons for us, just as it did for those who heard it the first time so many years ago. Lord, this story reveals things that we need to know about you, about our God. Lord, would you help us now to see and to understand you through this scripture. Help us to see that your hand is always at work, even behind the scenes. Oh God, may we discern your hand at work. May we offer you thanks and give you praise. We need you to be our guide right now, Lord, to help us see you afresh. Father, may we clearly see and may we be completely focused on you. May we come to know you better, Lord. May we worship you alone and may we do so in the fullness of your truth. Amen. Well, when we humans make plans, we often consider contingencies, don't we? You know, if plan A doesn't quite work out like we thought, well, then we've got plan B or maybe plan C or D. That's because we almost never have all the information that we need, um, let alone the expertise and the, the wisdom to come up with a perfect plan. Now, if you've ever been there, then you should be able to relate to what Pharaoh was going through as, we, as our passage starts this morning. As we saw last time, Pharaoh had come up with a plan for dealing shrewdly with the Hebrews. He perceived them as a threat. And he thought that by subjecting them to slave labor, to really harsh conditions, that he could literally beat them into submission. But plan A didn't work, did it? The more these Hebrews were afflicted, the more they multiplied. The more that Pharaoh's perceived threat increased. So time for plan B. Pharaoh ordered the midwives to quietly put the sons to death, but let the daughters live. Well, that didn't work out so well for Pharaoh either, did it? Because of those God-fearing midwives, Shifra and Pua. So what's Pharaoh's plan C? What's he going to do now? Well, he told us in verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. The Israelites were already living in desperate times. And Pharaoh just made things a whole lot worse. This is a tough situation. These people needed to be saved, but they couldn't free themselves, and they had no one to help them. Where is God? What is he doing? Why doesn't he help us? You can just hear those thoughts running through their minds. But here's the thing. Salvation is God's sovereign work. 
He decides when and where and how. And it's only going to work according to his plan. He's in total control from the very start to the finish. Now, in the midst of these dire circumstances, when there's no earthly reason for hope, what do we see? We see that life goes on. A man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Hmm. Familiar story. A man and a woman fall in love and start a family. Pretty normal. We learn later that their names are Amram and Jochebed. And before Moses comes along, they are blessed with a daughter, Miriam. And then sometime later, a son, Aaron. But then right in the midst of this war on baby boys, um, they, they get pregnant. They have another child, a male child. A healthy, beautiful baby boy who will be known as Moses. He's their son, but he's born under this death sentence. What are they going to do? Where can they turn? Well, these parents lean into the only resource that's available to them. Hebrews 11 describes it this way in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, they had faith. They had faith in the God of their fathers. And their faith gave them the courage to do everything possible to save their son. So they hid him as long as they could. But when she could no longer hide him, she got, got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. What we're going to see throughout this passage is Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, faithfully at work behind the scenes. What is his work here at this time and in this place? Well, it's nothing less than the salvation of the one he has chosen to deliver his people from their bondage. Yahweh, God, is not mentioned at all in this passage. His name is absent, but his providence is surely evident. Well, what is, what is providence? What is God's providence? There's been a lot of theological debate about that. Um, and that will leave for a lunchtime conversation. Um, that's been going on for centuries. But what we want to focus on here, for our purposes, is a very simple working definition of providence. Providence is simply God at work manipulating and forming circumstances for the benefit of his people and for his ultimate glory. Let me say that again. Providence is simply God at work manipulating and forming circumstances for the benefit of his people 
and for his ultimate glory. So here we find God at work, his providence, through a desperate mother. For three months, Jochebed has managed to keep her son from being discovered. For three months, she has endured the agony of suspense. Will this be the day that he's found? Ripped from her arms and thrown into the Nile to drown? Each day, he was more and more likely to be found. Each day, the tension mounted. The agony increased until finally, desperate to save her child, she puts him in a waterproof basket. In Hebrew, the word is teba, and it literally means an ark. And in Scripture, we encounter that word only one other place, and that's in Genesis. Does the name Noah ring a bell? Mm. There was an Italian rabbi named Umberto Casuto, and he put it rather eloquently. He said it this way, This is certainly not a mere coincidence. Scripture apparently intends to draw attention to the thematic analogy. In both instances, one worthy of being saved and destined to bring salvation to others is to be rescued from death by drowning. With Noah, the salvation of humanity is involved, but, it is, but here it is the salvation of the chosen people. Noah and this baby pass through deadly waters in an ark, a vessel of salvation. In an act of creative disobedience, Jochebed places her child in the basket and sets it into the river. You know, this, this could be one of the earliest forms of civil disobedience. Um, she fulfilled kind of the letter of the law. I mean, the baby ended up in the river but she certainly didn't follow the intent. And it's interesting here, the Hebrew carries a connotation of gentleness, uh, of tenderness, um, both as she's placing the baby in the basket and as she's setting the basket in the river. What a stark contrast to the way Pharaoh said it. Throw the babies in the Nile, let them drown. Now, Jochebed is a mother, and no matter how thorough her preparations, placing her child into the river, that's the kind of thing a mother could do only through faith. Having received her son as a gift from Yahweh, in faith, she's giving him back to Yahweh's loving care. And isn't that a good reminder for us? All children are precious gifts from God. And raising a child, isn't that an act of faith? By faith, we train up our children. In faith, we send them out into the world, right? But not in three months. Oh. We also find that God was at work through Pharaoh's daughter. In verse 5, we read, The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, and 
with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Pharaoh's daughter showed up at just the right time, in just the right place. And she even had just the right attitude. What a coincidence. That was lucky, huh? No, <laughs> no. That is God's providence at work. From the text, it's hard to tell whether um, she had pity on him because the baby was crying and then she figured out he was a Hebrew or whether she recognized him straight away as a Hebrew and had pity on him. It doesn't really matter. What matters, what's important is that in her pity, she decides she wants to keep this baby. And that's in direct defiance to the orders of her father, the king. Now, this action had significant ramifications for the salvation of the Hebrew slaves. But it also reminds us that the exodus isn't just for Israel. Okay, here's a, spoil it's a spoiler alert. Um, when the Hebrew Hebrews finally make it out of Egypt in along about chapter 12, um, we're going to read that there was a mixed multitude that went out with them. And some of that mixed multitude was undoubtedly Egyptians. You see, it's always been a part of God's plan to save people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Isaiah prophesied that one day God would say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. One day, Christians everywhere are going to give thanks to God for Pharaoh's daughter, a compassionate Gentile woman who was part of God's plan of salvation. Now, not only was God working through the baby's mother and through Pharaoh's daughter, he was also working through the baby's sister. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from among the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. We don't know how old Miriam was at this time. She could have been 8, 10, 12 years old. Maybe she even recognized the princess, Pharaoh's daughter. But at the very least, she knew this is a really important Egyptian. We should marvel at how quick-witted she was, how audacious, how brave. She was determined to do what she could to save her baby brother. So she runs up to the princess. This slave girl runs up to the princess and says, Shall I go find a nurse for the baby? And amazingly, Pharaoh's daughter says, Yeah, go ahead. Find me a nurse. So, of course, Miriam runs right to her mother and brings her back to the princess. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. 
And so we find God's providence working through the mother, working through Pharaoh's daughter, working through the sister, and all the way back to the baby's mother. Hmm. Do you think that when Jochebed placed the baby in the basket and put that basket into the Nile River that she expected to see her son again? Well, she got to see him again the same day. And not only that, she gets to take care of him. And not only that, she gets to do so under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter. Mm. Her deepest longing was satisfied. And that's just what God does for those he plans to save. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be suffering, that there's not going to have to be sacrifice, or that everything is going to turn out just the way we desire. God is doing what is best from an eternal perspective. And not just for people in general, but for each of us personally. You see, God was doing what was best for Moses and best for Moses' mother. Miriam did Pharaoh's uh, daughter a favor by finding a nurse, right? But this too was all part of God's plan. You see, by having Moses spend his earliest years, those years that are so crucial to shaping a child's identity, he got to spend those with his Hebrew family, with the people of God. Now, we don't know how long he got to spend with his mom, but it was at least until he was weaned, and, and it could have been several years, and it could have been even longer than that. We can't be sure. But what we can be sure of is that Moses had an opportunity to bond with his mother. And she had time to teach him some things about life, some important things about life, and some important things about his heritage. The story of Moses' birth closes with Moses entering Pharaoh's court as the adopted son of the princess. In verse 10, we read, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Moses would always be Jochebed's son, but he grew up in Pharaoh's court, not as a slave, but as a son. Now, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter may have kind of messed up the real meaning of Moses. Um, she's, she said, because I drew him out of the water. But the literal interpretation is, he who draws out of. And man, that, that's like ironic humor. It fits so well with Moses' destiny. He who drew out of. A much stronger hint. Well, in the court, Moses would have been instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and that meant he received the best possible education of the time. He likely was trained in mathematics, in art, in astronomy, in architecture, in medicine, in law, in diplomacy, and in languages. Pharaoh's own people 
were training Moses in the knowledge and the skills that he would use to lead God's people out of Egypt. And in the process of leading them out, he was going to ruin Pharaoh and Pharaoh's entire kingdom. Stephen confirmed this over a thousand years later when he was speaking to the Sanhedrin. And we find the account in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. It's pretty easy for us, isn't it, to see God's presence in action throughout this story. But we have the benefit of knowing the entire story. We've got the entire account of Exodus. We've got all of Scripture. We aren't living through those events. But we can see that God was working even if it wasn't obvious to the Israelites at that time. But what about here, today, right now, here? Do you suppose God could be at work, even though we might not be aware? Could His providence be forming and manipulating circumstances and events in ways that we don't understand? You know, there's a high, high probability that at some point in the future, it might be soon, it might not be until we get to heaven, but we'll be able to see how God's providence was preserving, protecting, prompting, and prodding us. All of us, you, and you, and you, and me. And we're going to say, praise you, Yahweh. I didn't even know that was you. How did you manage that? Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me for ever questioning you, forever doubting that you were there and working, that you, that you care, that you would help me. And we're going to be so blown away by the revelation of how much God has done for us. We won't be able to stop singing his praises. Let's circle back to, to Pharaoh and his plan for dealing shrewdly with the Israelites, just for a couple of minutes. Now, based on what we've already seen from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and what we know about Egyptian culture and their history, I think we can all agree that Pharaoh was just an evil guy. And I say that because... He considered himself a god. Uh, the Pharaoh was the child of the sun god, the son of the sun god, Ra. He was evil because he hated God's people, God's chosen people. 
And he was evil because he was willing to kill the innocent just to achieve his own ends. And even beyond that, he caused his entire nation to enter into genocide. But we can learn a lesson about evil from Pharaoh, about how evil spreads. There's an old saying that what a man does, dares to do in private, he gradually becomes unashamed to do in public. And once it's in the open, many others will get pulled into this evil as well. So what started as Pharaoh's own personal misgivings about the Hebrews rapidly progressed to the point of involving the entire nation in genocide. This is a pattern, unfortunately, that we see over and over in world history. Even in fairly recent history, there's the Holocaust, Soviet pogroms, Rwanda, Cambodia, Bangladesh, East Timor, and we could go on and on. And even today, right now, what about Ukraine? What about the Uyghurs in China? And then there's the struggle between life and death that we know as abortion. What started as a scandalous, secretive way to end a pregnancy is now a mainstream, openly practiced right. When euthanasia started making headlines not so long ago, it was usually a matter of a rogue healthcare worker stealthily administrating a deadly dose of a drug to mercifully relieve suffering. Now, we've seen people euthanized on network TV. Assisted dying is legal in at least 12 states, one of which is our very state. And it's on the ballot more and more in other states. Evil is never satisfied. Evil always desires more and more and more. Evil's very real and it has a voracious appetite. But one of the important things that we need to take from our passage here today is that God, Yahweh, always has and always will triumph over evil. Folks, I've read the end of the book. God wins in the end. He may not win every battle or every skirmish. The outcome of the war is not in question. As we read this passage, the deliverance of Moses, man, that's a happy, happy event. It's right and it's good for us to be joyful about this divinely arranged outcome. But this coin, it has another side, and we need to talk about it. I'm, I'm guessing some of you have already even thought of it. Um, this isn't mentioned in the text, but you know, sometimes silence speaks volumes. One author I read succinctly summarized it this way. Moses' parents enjoyed God's marvelous providence but many more knew his 
mysterious providence. And it's important to remember we meet both in the course of the Christian experience. This is perplexing. It can even be unsettling to think about it. Sometimes God's providence is gut-wrenching and heart-stopping. Sometimes, like he did to Jacobed, he keeps us in suspense far, far longer than we would choose. At times, he takes us to our very limits. And in all of this, God is at all times and in all ways sovereign. And, and for us, there will always be mystery in God's sovereignty. Our natural desire is to understand. So we ask, why this baby and not this baby? How do we deal with mystery? How do we accept not knowing? Let, let me offer you a couple of thoughts. First, we need to rely on what we do know about God. We can focus on his attributes. We know that our God is love. We know that he is goodness personified. We know that he is kind, that he is merciful, that he is just, that he is holy. And we could go on, couldn't we? We can and we should trust him to always do what is best. Not just for me, not just for you, but for everyone, everywhere, for all of time. Another thing that we can think about, um, you know, as those Hebrew parents watched their children being thrown into the Nile to drown, God knew exactly what they were experiencing. God had complete empathy with them. You see, our God knows exactly what it is to sacrifice the son. God understands us, and that's enough. We don't need to understand him fully. There's mystery in God's sovereignty, mystery that I will never understand, at least not on this earth, and that's okay. God knows what he's doing. Well, speaking of God's son, we, we can't really leave this passage without pointing out how Moses is a foreshadow or a type of God's son, Jesus Christ. Just a couple of quick thoughts. Both were born in the midst of a slaughter of the innocents with an edict of death over their heads. Both were saved by divine providence. Hey, God triumphs over evil. And both ended up being called out of Egypt by Yahweh. And, and we'll see a number of these as we go through our journey in Exodus. You know, Moses was delivered to be a savior, but he was not the savior. Moses was only a prototype, and Israel was going to have to wait quite some time for the Messiah to show up. 
But we get an idea about how the Israelites felt. If we read in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we find there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. But then, then a child was born in Bethlehem, a child who we now know was worthy of more glory than Moses, the very Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. We'll close with this. A new hope has come to Israel. This new hope represents a new chapter in their relationship with Yahweh. This new chapter didn't start with fanfare. It didn't start with some monumental battle. It didn't start with a hero appearing on the scene ready to vanquish the foe and right every wrong. No, this new chapter begins with the cry of an infant and the providence of a great and mighty God. In this new chapter, God is going to reveal himself to his people and also to the Egyptians and ultimately to the entire world. Everyone will know that Yahweh is the Lord. The march of God's salvation has begun. Nothing can deter it. It is inexorable. It is inevitable. And this was his plan from the very beginning, from the very foundation of the earth. God has spoken openly of this over and over. Pastor Frank showed us several places in Genesis last week where we find that promise. And we're going to see more. God's plan is immutable. It does not change. God's plan and his timing, it's inevitable. It cannot be stopped. The Israelites, we're going to see, they're going to learn, they're going to know that they have a God who keeps his promises, a God who helps them. They're going to learn that they have a God who works in them and through them. And they're going to learn that they have a God who saves. Dear friends, do you know a God who helps you? Do you know a God who keeps his promises? Do you know a God who works in you, transforming you, and who works even through you to help and minister to others? Do you know the hope of the salvation that he brings? The story of Moses' birth cries out to us to worship and adore our God. A God who can work in such wondrous and mysterious ways. It also calls us to trust our God. Like the mother who put her baby in a basket and put it into the Nile River. Hope is in the God 
who saves. Would you stand and let's pray. Gracious God, oh gracious God, be about your work. Even when it's behind the scenes, even when we can't see it, Lord. But Father, would you give us glimpses? May we see your mighty hand at work. And may we always, when we do, be quick to praise and thank you. Great God, your ways are mysterious to us, and we don't even deserve your consideration. And yet you choose to work through us to accomplish your will. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us to save and transform, that you would continue to work through us to further your kingdom and to bring blessing to others. And, oh, God... Heavenly Father, I pray that if there are any here today who have not yet trusted in you, oh, Lord, may they do so soon. Lord, may they experience what the hymn writer expressed when he wrote, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. And, oh, God, may we all, not just here, but throughout the world, join the refrain, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That's what we need, Lord. We need more grace. We need your grace. Grant us grace, Lord. Grant us grace, we pray, in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.